Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm pretty excited right now because this show is getting back on track to regular Tuesday episodes beginning with today's. Plus, I am now putting even more time and energy into this show by a lot than I ever have before. So expect some new things to come with that very soon. All right, I'm thrilled for today's guest. If you've listened to some of my shows, you know I'm a huge fan of the Chess Dojo. Up to this point, I featured interviews with two of the three founders of the Chess Dojo, Kostya Kavutsky and Jesse Cry. Those are episodes 17 and 22, respectively, if you want to check those out. And today, we complete the circle and feature the always insightful David Proust. David is an international master And as I mentioned, a co-founder of the Chess Dojo, and that offers a community and training for chess improvers. They stream great educational topics on Twitch, as well as deep dive discussions on chess called Dojo Talks. And Dojo Talks is one of my favorite content pieces that they offer, uh, both of just their own channel, as well as just any chess channel, period. And just to give you a little bit more about Chess Dojo, if you're not familiar, uh, so that way you know what David is a part of and what he's involved in, Chess Dojo also offers a fantastic guide for improvement at any level with their service called the Training Program. I do it and I love it. Uh, We talk about some of that and what's involved in their program in this episode. And even if you don't join, I think you'll learn a lot by our discussion on that topic. Links for it, if you are curious, are in the show notes and on my website page for this episode. In addition to that, David and I have a fantastic discussion on a broad range of topics. We talk about whether it's worth being excited about this current world championship that's going on. We explore a bit of his own chess journey, including when he worked at chess.com in its earlier days. And we also talk about some improvement topics, including identifying a missing ingredient of my own study program, which might be relevant for you too. And we finished the episode with a great question for David from one of my Twitter followers on chess improvement. Here's my interview with him. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, David. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm all right. I'm. I'm happy to do this interview with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the answer to how are you is never simple for me. I'm not somebody to just say good reflexively. For me, it's a real question. I, I appreciate have to that. Interrogate myself and and <laughs> and look for the answer. And on most days, I can come up with reasons why I'm great and reasons why I'm struggling. And it's some kind of mix of the two. And I would say today today falls into that category. I'm neither in the pits nor soaring. Okay. Well, I appreciate 
like a non-reflexive answer because you're right. Most people do just give one and um, uh, that's common. Although usually, well, not always, when I ask that of somebody, I always mean it with intent and curiosity to know how they are doing. And I'm always fine if someone says they're not well. But yeah. so I appreciate the honesty in that. And um, I guess I'll say I'm glad to hear that you're not on the far end of, the, right. of, the, of that spectrum of where it could be. So that's good. That's right. How about you? Are you are you on your game for today? I'm on my game for this. I am excited about our interview. It's a little bit of a stressful time for me right now in general, just because we're planning a potential move. And I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, everyone knows that can be, that can be a, a tough thing to navigate sometimes, even if it goes well. So that yeah, part is me too. <laughs> kind of, oh, really? You're in the, you're uh, considering a move as well? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm moving to, to France. Where are you moving to? Oh, well, nothing as uh, exciting as that. Uh, well, I'm just moving to a different neighborhood in Chicago. So okay. uh, it's not a far move, but it's still, uh, you know, challenging to figure out. But that's, uh, that's interesting that you're moving to France. Have you lived there before? The longest I've stayed in France was a summer. Okay. Uh, and I assume that was a good summer. Otherwise, you wouldn't... Uh, I'll oh, be considering living there. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a wonderful summer. It, it stands out in my increasingly lengthy memory of my life. <laughs> As uh, you know, the longer you've been around, the you know some things fall out of your memory, and other things really still hold their place, like a great game. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that was a great summer. And uh, I'm only going for a year. I will be planning to move back to the U.S. Anyway. Oh, okay. So this is not a long term move but no okay all right well that's still exciting you know i wanted to uh i have a whole bunch of obviously chess questions to ask you and i want to talk about your own chess journey your, your personal chess journey before diving into that we are as we are recording this in the midst of a world chess championship and right i thought it would be interesting just to touch on that a little bit so how excited have you been for this match in the absence of magnus participating i was unexcited prior to the match beginning and then once first blood was drawn it was like it was like something like switched on in me you know some some animal response to blood and, <laughs> and i was like oh yeah nepo's killing him you know and then ding won a game i was like oh man you know ding's all the way back there's no stopping this yeah um you can see to some extent i have a very short memory you know so. <laughs> Um, whoever's won the most recent game, it's like, ah, oh, nobody can stop them. They're going to win the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Did you, I know you going into this match, you said you weren't particularly excited about it. Did you think one of them was likely to win this match? Not overwhelmingly. So my favorite going into the match was Nepo because of the experience of playing the previous match with Magnus. Uh, that's the extent of my, you know, prognosticator depth <laughs> on, on this particular thing. You know, I haven't gone in depth into, you know, which openings each one is likely to use against the other and what weakness there might be. You know, I also suspected Nepo would have a better second team than Ding just because it, but this was sort of guesswork, but it felt like China wasn't behind Ding as a, as a huge <laughs> organizational force. The way I, the way I think there's some Russian machine behind Nepo, you know, I think he's got sponsors and seconds he's worked with before and all that, you know, and one thing that Magnus had over everybody else for the last decade was that he had a five person team, a well-oiled machine, right? People knew their roles, right? And, you know, there were people who come up with new ideas, people who edit the ideas, people who 
you know, travel to this country to be this many time zones apart to work on things while he's sleeping and this and that, you know, and other people had maybe a team of one person, other people in the top five, you know, for comparison's sake, right? Um, you know, if, if that they would have like one full-time person and he's got five. So then when you go to play a world championship again, match against him, obviously people would scramble up a team of three or four people instead of one for that event. But then you've worked together for three to six months and Magnus's people, they've been working together for 10 years. So you're outgunned, right? So I thought that would be another little advantage Nepo would have is that I thought he would have, you know, a bit of a team with a bit of experience under its belt. In addition to him personally having his experiences under his belt. It's easy for me to forget that once Ding wins a game, right? But I imagine that Team Nepo has been working through this breath day pretty hard and that they've got all kinds of strings to their bow. So, Yeah, for sure. The fact that Ding was able to score a win at the time of this recording may be a different story when people hear this episode. I don't know. But as we're recording right now, it's it's tied 2-2 with each player having a win and uh, there being two draws. Do you feel that because Ding has scored a relatively early win that his chances have gone up in winning this match in your mind? Yeah, I think that brings the match much closer to 50-50, which I think in general is a reasonable prognostication for most. (laughs) Like if most people say, I don't know who's going to win, that's kind of the most accurate uh, guess that they could make (laughs) rather than claiming that somehow they've got a brilliant insight. And me personally, if I wanted to pretend I would have, I had a brilliant insight, I would have to watch the games live and sort of project myself into the heads of the players and see where they're using time and where they're not and figure out, you know, where they've got confidence. And because it's really this titanic psychological struggle also between the two players, each trying to convince the other person that they're going to win the match, right? Like if, if, in a tournament, if you lose a game, the next day you play somebody else. It's very easy to just pick yourself up and say like, well, I'm not as good as Daniel, but I'm better than Daniela, <laughs> right? Right. And just like brush off a loss and move on to the next game. But if I'm playing you 24 times in a row, and unfortunately these matches are not 24 games, but if I know that every time I lose, I just have to play you again, it's a whole different beast, right? And once you convince me that you're going to win the match and I'm going to lose it. Now I'm really in a hole, right? So a lot of it is I can only be as confident as you are unconfident. You could think conservation of confidence, right? <laughs> like, like we go into the match, maybe we each think we have a 50% chance to win the match. And then you try to convince me that really you're going to win it. And I try to convince you that really I'm going to win it. And so we're, we're jockeying for psychological position. I can't, I can't, and analyze any of that because the games are happening at 2 a.m. for me and I'm not watching them live. You have to <laughs> see them live to appreciate what's going on. Yeah, that's a great insight. I don't think I appreciate that enough or considered it enough that this idea that you are facing the same person every time and there's a big psychological aspect to that, which is if you keep losing to that same person, it's hard to believe that you can come out ahead in the match. Maybe even hard to believe you come out in any given game if you suffer enough losses, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. Really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, there was a world championship match, Kasparov Kramnik, where at some point Kasparov offered it. He was behind and he offered a draw with white and like 13 moves or something like that. And, you know, 
a real expert who's watching closely can see that moment and say like, well, <laughs> this guy doesn't seem to think he can, he can win. Yeah. You know, like he, it's almost like he, unless Kramnik falls into a specific opening preparation and a trap, not in the sense of blundering your queen, like the rest of us do, or blundering a piece or something, but like a trap, like something that puts him in a really dangerous, precarious position. It's like, unless he gets something tangible out of his opening prep, he doesn't even believe in playing an equal game at length and outplaying the opponent. Right. So um, big psychological moments like that. And in general, I mean, there's probably so many people following this match who for multiple reasons can't really prognosticate it because if you haven't played OTB, you don't know what it's like. And then even if you've played OTB tournaments and you felt like what the six hours are like and, and all that, if you haven't played a match, you still don't know what it actually feels like to play the same person day after day. Yeah. And I think few of us have played a match. <laughs> very, very rare. There's yeah. probably, I mean, I don't know how many listeners you have, but I'd be surprised if you've got more than five listeners who have played an OTB match that was more than eight games long right. against another yeah. opponent. Considering the vast majority of my audience is adult club players, I'm going to say that's a pretty safe estimate yeah. that you have. Yeah, Like uh, the longest I've played is four games. So I, I wouldn't fall into that category either. You know, very limited experience. So you're excited for the rest of the match now? At this oh, point? yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm all about chess. You know, I don't, I don't care so much, you know, who's playing or what the title is or if they're better or worse than Magnus. Like that stuff doesn't really matter to me it's just i just live to see good chess moves so. oh that's interesting so i can't help but wonder then why were you less excited for this match going into it um you know somehow because all anyone was talking about was you know should magnus play or not play magnus this magnus that and so you know and then is this actually a world championship and blah 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 and, it, and if it's not a world championship at what point is Magnus no longer world champion? Because he can't just endlessly not defend his title or endlessly not participate and be world champion forever, right? That doesn't make sense either. So there's kind of, you know, people are stuck arguing about it because there isn't really any logical answer. Like if you ask, has the universe always existed without any starting point? Or did the universe appear out of nowhere and there was no conservation of mass and energy, right? Like neither position is logical and therefore your brain just sort of breaks down um so in that same sense it's like you know magnus's world championship does it you know when does it pass or transfer from his body to somebody else's <laughs> yeah. but anyway since everyone's talking about that stuff it 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 kind of sucked the energy out of it because we're talking about all this off the board stuff that we also can't even answer and if somebody just said jesse always calls it an exhibition match my buddy from the dojo. But if somebody had just said the number two and number three players in the world are going to play an epic match against each other to find out which of them is the second best player in the world. If you had just said that, and then there'd been no discussions, everyone was like, oh yeah, that's, that's a hot match. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if that was the whole proposal, I think hype would have been 10 times higher and everyone would have been, would have been waiting all year long. Right. Right. I mean, if I told you that Wesley So and Fabiano Caruana were going to play a 20 game match classical chess later this year, I would watch that. I would you would watch instantly every game. be like, yeah. oh, I want to see that, <laughs> yeah. you know? Right. Um, you know, and their number, whatever, five and seven or something like that at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I can see why all that discussion kind of, kind of 
saps a bit of the enthusiasm for the match. But yeah, now that it's begun and we have, I think, a pretty dynamic uh, match so far that uh, I think it's pretty, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to get excited about it, uh, honestly. Beautiful match. And for my sake, I hope the players don't settle down. (laughs) You know, when people ask what's the quality of play, the more draws there are, to some extent, the higher quality of play. Hmm. But but I like the blood. (laughs) Right. So I I hope they keep going for chances, you know? Like, I think H3 was a really stupid opening choice by Ding. And uh, But I hope they keep going for stuff like that, you know? I hope that the players with white keep trying to find some uncharted territory instead of just playing it safe and accepting a long string of draws and hoping to wear down the opponent. Yeah, I hope you're right, too. I mean, just as a audience member watching something like this that's always the most interesting for sure so yeah definitely agree um yeah so i just want to shift to talking a bit about your own chess journey yeah. david um i know you know there's a lot of people who watch chess dojo myself included and you know love all the talks and discussions that you guys have you know there's not necessarily time in those instances to just kind of take a little bit of a, a dive into your own story. So I, I, I hope uh, people will be interested and excited to hear about this. So yeah. what got you into chess and when did it become a passion for you? So I was attracted to chess and passionate about it from the moment I learned when I was five. But from the, from the perspective of, you know, where's my chess development start? My chess development actually starts at 12 when I go to a chess club for the first time. You know, so I'm neither a child prodigy nor an adult improver, right? I'm sort of in a middle ground. I started really late for a chess professional, but also, you know, anybody who started, and I I think your podcast is largely geared towards these people. Anybody who started a journey as an adult would be like, oh man, what do I, what I would give to have had a few like really young development years, you know, maybe when I didn't have bills to pay yet and, you know, a lot of free time and I could have. I could have spent my recesses playing chess instead of, you know, playing hooky or whatever, you know, like <laughs> right. whatever they did. So I, I'm kind of in a middle ground there, but the love was there immediately. Like the moment I saw it, the love was there. I love puzzles and trying to solve little intellectual things. I've got a very ivory tower kind of side to me. We're trying to figure out the answer to some puzzle, even if it doesn't matter to anyone or anything in any way. It's very fun for my mind to play with. And so I had the passion immediately, but because I had no contact with the chess world, it was just me against my brother, my dad who taught us to play, but who, who wasn't a tournament player, basically just me and my younger brother playing, you know, I had all the passion, but I was doing things like trying to play a four, B four, C four, D (laughs) four, E four, F four, G four, H four, setting up an impregnable wall and conquering (laughs) territory on the chessboard. So, it's no joke that I had no, you know, chess class or culture or understanding, right? I was, I was truly still a beginner at age 12. Was there something specific that motivated you to go to the chess club or was it? No, I, you know, kids in the, in America are really quite helpless by and large, um, at least those that I know. And so it would have never occurred to me to find a chess club or find a chess book or anything, you know, I just... <laughs> My one, my my mom just saw an ad for a chess club in the in the newspaper, and she brought me there. And then, of course, I was like, "Oh, give it, give, yeah. <laughs> give it to me all, give me all of this." You know, other kids who loved the game. There were 
two fantastic teachers there. They started lending me books to read. Whew. That's awesome. Um, well, I, I can relate a little bit. I didn't, I've never gone nearly as far as you have in chess, but I was, um, also in middle school when I became very passionate about chess and joined my school's, uh, chess club and started competing in some local like inter-school tournaments mm-hmm. um so i understand like yeah getting excited about chess at that point in life is very relatable for me so this podcast as i mentioned is you know mostly for adult improvers um and so i always take an interest in when people are trying to improve at that stage in their life and right. you earned your fm and im titles in your 20s what was it like pursuing those titles at that time with, at that point, the responsibilities and lifestyle of, of an adult? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is I was sort of, I was born into a fairly privileged position. Um, you know, where, where my, my parents had enough means to continue paying for my health insurance when I was in my twenties. So I didn't have like a huge pressure or weight. And when you're, when you're single, since I didn't have kids at a young age, when you're single, your costs aren't that extreme if your needs are, are very few. Right. So my parents were paying healthcare and, you know, I mean, I, I could make do with a, with a, and I have, you know, lived in a eight by eight room with no bed and uh, a ceiling where you can't stand up, (laughs) you know, and, you know, I've got a blanket on the floor and uh, a stack of chess books next to my blanket. And so if that's how you're living, it's not, it's not that expensive. Right. So, so I didn't have that much responsibility really the way a lot of other adult improvers do. And I had a really easy gig to generate some money, which was teaching chess lessons because I had reached master while in high school. And so when I was in college, I was teaching private lessons for money already, which was for a college student, it was insane money, right? Because if I'd gone down and worked shifts at the dining commons, I would have been getting $7 an hour. And instead I was getting $30 an hour to teach chess lessons. And that means that, you know, I can work eight hours a week where other people have to work 40 and that feels really flexible. And, um, and then I'm studying chess all the time. So actually I didn't have too much of, you know, responsibilities or difficulties weighing me down. I had a pretty easy way in that sense. So you didn't have to spend eight hours a day working then basically is kind of what you're saying. Like it wasn't that typical structure. Yeah. Um, But did you struggle at all with having to do that much chess in a day? You know, your own study as well as helping others? No, no, I would, you know, so you can tell I would work. Maybe I would teach maybe like two lessons, spend maybe an hour to an hour and a half preparing lessons. And then on top of that, maybe 10 hours studying and playing chess for myself. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would have gladly filled up even more hours if the day were longer. There's no, (laughs) no (laughs) limit how much chess I had an appetite for. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Just moving a little further along then in your own chess journey. Um, at what point did you start working for chess.com? And if you're okay talking about it, how did that come about for you? Yeah, I um I made a transition from being a professional chess player to being a professional chess content person uh, when I started working at chess.com. 
And the transition happened between December 2008 and January 2009. Um, I had had ostent. So <laughs> there's an ostensible reason for the move, which was a move from a kind of more self-absorbed and selfish pursuit, which is just bettering yourself to a more communal or other oriented thing of trying to make other people better at chess, right? And that was the ostensible reason for it. But in fairness, it should also be said that my my chess progress had hit some, some bumps and I had failed to diagnose my problem and therefore failed to repair it. So if I'd been winning all my games, like everybody's dream is, and, you know, making grandmaster and competing in the U S championships more and stuff like that. Um, would I have made the same choice? Frankly, it's unlikely, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, yeah. e- even though, you know, you say that the reason is, Oh, you know, it was, it was selfish of me to just be focused on myself. I'd been doing it for a couple of years and it was time to, to share and do something that mattered to more people than just myself that sounds good and it makes sense. But I think as long as people are winning, very <laughs> few people will walk away from success or a winning situation, you know? So it might've taken me longer to make the switch if my results had been continuing to, to improve. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a great insight too about winning and, and staying with something if you are winning and moving forward. So when the opportunity with chess.com came along, did you see it as like, it would make sense to kind of step away from you know, maybe the more competitive side of chess right now and move towards this since, you, like you said, not as much progress was happening as you may have wanted. I guess what I'm saying is, was it a relief that that came along or was it kind of, I guess I should begrudgingly step away from competitive chess? I don't remember any of those emotions you're suggesting, like mm-hmm. neither like that there was any begrudging on my part, nor that there was relief or anything like that. I... I don't remember feeling like I needed an escape or some way out or anything like that. I was in the process of, of reflecting on stopping professional chess and wanting to do something else and figure something else when I happened to meet the co-founders of chess.com. And the timing just, I think, happened to be perfect um, because they had launched this site and it had been live for a year and a year, year and a half, maybe, maybe they'd launched it in May, 2007. So maybe a year and a half when I met them in December. Um, And the site was still pretty small and they wanted to professionalize some of the content and they, couldn't get professional chess players to give them the time of day. I don't know if this is still the case. It seems like less so, but chess used to be very rating hierarchical. You know, the way like an aristocrat might not speak to a peasant on the street. (laughs) It was like, if you were 1200, then maybe 1800s wouldn't talk to you. And if you were 1800, then maybe IMs wouldn't talk to you, or maybe you'd be afraid to even speak to an IM and the IMs would be afraid to talk to the GMs. And so, (laughs) you know, and in any, if you've got five people in a group, the highest rated person would talk and the other four would listen, you know, respectfully. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It it had a feeling of that. I I, I don't want to make it too extreme, but I think it was 
definitely a strong enough factor that, you know, anybody would agree that that was a, a big element in the chess world at the time. So, you know, they were enthusiastic lovers of chess, Eric and Jay, but they didn't have titles and they would contact, you know, IMs and GMs and famous chess people and uh, just n- not even get answers in general. Um, so, I, so I, I joined them and said like, Hey, let's, let's add professional chess content to your site. At the time it was sort of user generated content, right? Like YouTube or any other place, uh, any other platform kind of situation. Right. So, and since they didn't have, you know, a bunch of, I guess now on YouTube, you can find really good content also, right. With experts in their fields, talking about their fields and stuff like that. But back then, you know, you didn't have big creator contents on, uh, channel content channels on YouTube with people monetizing there. And so there, the chess instruction that was available on chess.com at the time was kind of like the blind leading the blind, right? Like somebody would make it to 1200 and then try and teach somebody who's 1000 by posting articles about their games. Um, and so, uh, so I found a great opportunity there to bring top chess teachers to the website and then spread their teachings to more people than they had realized they could reach. That's interesting. Yeah. I had no idea that you were involved with bringing professional content to chess.com in its earlier days. Yeah, that was, that was my job. And, um, you know, that I was director of content and professional relations and then, you know, all kinds of other side jobs. Cause when a company is small, everybody does a lot of stuff. Um, but you know, first they were just, they were just looking like, would I, you know, write them an article or something like that? That was like the minimum ask, right? Can I, <laughs> can I provide any professional chess content? And I said, I, all my friends are professional chess players, right? Like <laughs> I can bring you, I can bring you a whole system of, of chess content. How long were you at chess.com? Four years and a month or two. Okay. And then it was about, I guess, several years after after you had left chess.com that you became part of Chess Dojo, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a gap of seven years there, probably. Okay. Something you mentioned when we talked prior to this interview really interested me. You said that you were attracted to working and building Chess Dojo uh, because you felt at that point in your life, you didn't do as much in chess as you wanted. What at that point did you still want to do in chess? Mm, right. What were the things like left behind? <laughs> yeah. What was what was unfulfilled for you at that point? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm a bit of like an idealist and a dreamer. I always have these insane ambitions, and I don't fulfill them. Um, and sometimes it's because I don't have the, the, the staying power to go through the final stages and the details, but other times it's because my ambitions are so big that it, you know, it was impossible, frankly, you know, so (laughs) (laughs) you were never going to do it no matter, no matter what effort you brought to it really. Right. So, um, in terms of what I wanted to still accomplish with chess, you know, I had wanted, one thing I'd wanted to do at chess.com that I wasn't able to do was make chesskid.com really popular. Um, because if you look at the general tournament landscape, I mean, some of your adult improvers will note this ruefully, right? But if you look at the chess landscape, you've got at least as many kids playing in tournaments as adults, right? Generally more. Right. 
So, <laughs> so you would think that chess kid could be on the scope and scale of chess.com. It's very important to have a separate site where people aren't sending rude messages and, you know, rude pictures and things like that to your kid when they're playing <laughs> blitz chess online. So it's very important to have a site like chess kid with the safeguards it had. And I really wanted to blow up chess kid, so to speak, you know, and make it comparable and equivalent to chess.com. So that was one thing I'd wanted to do that I didn't get the chance to do. Um, another thing I wanted to do was sort of set a business example in the chess world. Like since I was there, this has nothing to do with chess teaching, but you know, I have very strong politics, which we can leave out of your show as much as you like. But, um, but I wanted to set up business models that I thought would be favorable for um, chess teachers, chess professionals, um, the people running chess companies and platforms and uh, chess consumers, shall we say, right? Those buying books or videos or subscriptions. So I, I don't have to tell you how I think that should be, but that was something else that I wanted to do was I wanted to, I wanted to show, I wanted to show through a successful chess enterprise what those relations could and should be like in my sort of, you know, moral and political opinions. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we can get into that a little bit because I'm curious to know, you know, like what you envisioned. For example, uh, I guess one way for me to ask it is what did you want to do differently with the business model that you wanted to create than, you know, mm -hmm. what was being done in the chess world? Okay. So, um, yeah, if this is open territory for your podcast, I mean, I'm not here to proselytize or anything, but, um, one thing I wanted is for content creators. Um, and back in the day, you know, we just called them chess teachers. <laughs> <laughs> I want chess professionals and chess teachers to have some ownership and control over their material. Right. So, some of these opinions might be considered wacky, but for example, when people play a chess game, I feel like the two people who play it should have the ownership and copyright of their game. I understand there's all kinds of litigious responses about, oh, is it a score of a game or is it an actual game? And how could you ever prevent somebody from copying it? You can't copyright a score or whatever, blah, 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 whatever, all details. You know, if you believe in something, you can write the laws and systems accordingly. And, you know, people could respect the systems accordingly. Um, so it always seemed weird to me that professional chess players would buy their own games from, let's say, chess base. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're the ones creating the value. What Chessbase is selling to somebody is the records of your games. Not only do Topolov, Anand, et cetera, get nothing, right? Chessbase mm -hmm. is selling the work of Topolov and Anand. Yeah. Right. Also, there are programmers who like created a database, but I mean, realistically, the number of hours that programmers spent building the database versus the number of hours that Anand and Topolov and others spent playing the games... Mm -hmm. that populate that database right obviously the chess professionals have contributed a lot right so that not only are they not getting paid for it but aspiring you know ims or not top gms who are working their way up we're we're buying databases <laughs> with our own games <laughs> <in> them. <laughs> so that's an example of something I, I think a lot of people have a different opinion on that but that's an example of like owning your own work like i feel like people should own their games and then same with when you when you write 
a chess book or record a chess video or something like that. The, the normal business model is always that there's some kind of a publisher who owns it and they pay you a lump sum for your work generally. And then there's also systems with royalties, right? But in general, and I'm sure there's, there's variety everywhere, but in general, I think you don't really own your work after you've published it because somebody has published it for you and they've got the overall rights, even if you get some percentage back. And, uh, you know, like even to this day, if you go and put work on, on YouTube or Twitch or somewhere, you know, huge mega corporations like Amazon and Google get the lion's share of the revenue, uh, from your work. Um, you know, if you record a chess video for at the time, the internet chess club, now chess.com play Magnus when it was a separate entity, you know, in general, they'll give you some lump sum like $50 or a hundred dollars or something like that. And then they are free to make whatever money in perpetuity off of your work. So I would love for, I would love for chess teachers to, you know, sort of own their work in some form. Well, I think those are really interesting points. And I, I, I think, you know, your arguments for that are very compelling. And I, I don't think I really disagree at all. Anything you're saying. Oh, and I didn't, I didn't address another stakeholder in the whole equation. Another, you know, very simple, important piece is I wanted to drive prices down. That's the Mm -hmm. other thing I wanted to do. I see. So I wanted to make the stuff available Mm -hmm. so that when you record a video, I want your video to be able to go to 50,000 people, not 1000 people or 100 people. And I want the price of that video to come down to, you know, 10 cents accordingly, right? And you're still getting, so the chess creator is still getting a nice uh, consistent income over the years. It's quite considerable and it's accessible to people around the world. You know, you don't have to have a, a high paying job in a first world cr- country to be able to buy um, a couple good instructional chess videos if they're costing five or 10 cents. So those were those were the things that, um, at least in part, interested you in becoming part of Chess Dojo, right? To to pursue yeah. some of those things. I also have hundreds of other you know specific ideas of like teaching content I wanted to do or like reality chess TV shows that I wanted to do. <laughs> um, so there was a lot. You know, I've never written a chess book. The most I did was the like the longest single piece of work I did was a course on weak color um, complexes um on chess.com through a product that used to be called chess mentor and now it's probably through chess lessons um i really enjoyed doing that and there are you know there are people who understand chess much better than me but there are one or two things that i would really like to put together and teach that are a little bit in my wheelhouse and then i think i'm a good teacher so even if i don't understand the material at magnus carlson's level there are like a couple things where i feel like if i put my teaching touch on it uh, it would be worth putting it out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I definitely don't don't subscribe to the idea that someone has to be like at a GM level or higher to to teach chess right. well. Yeah, absolutely not. Especially since yeah. most people aren't aspiring to that level anyhow. As far as uh, talking some more about Chess Dojo, I just want to talk about the training program. We'll talk about other stuff too uh, in sure. regards to Chess Dojo because uh, I know you said you wanted to kind of expand what. Uh, ensure that, you know, Chess Dojo isn't known only for its training program, but it is one of its right. most popular things happening right now. Um, yeah. So let's just start with just a quick summary of it for anyone who's not familiar with it yet or don't doesn't know much about it. Can you just offer a brief overview of what it is? 
Yeah. So it started with a topic for Dojo Talks, hmm. which, as I understand it, is another chess podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's our, you know, s- approximately weekly talk show we do. Um, and we had a, a question, a topic for the week, which was, can you create sort of a universal training system? And I thought, yeah, kind of, kind of unlikely and hard to do. Um, but then in addition to discussing whether or not it was possible, we then set out for three months to see if we could <laughs> kind of do it <laughs> as a follow-up to that episode. And that's, you know, one of the really fun things of working with guys like, you know, Jesse and Kosti and also having your own control. It's like, if you were hundreds of people working together, you would, you would lose a lot of control. And if you're one person, you only have access to so many ideas, right? So when you've got a small group of people, it's really cool because you can harness all these ideas and creativity, but you can also have some direction and, and run with it. So we ran with it and, uh, and we created it and it was surprisingly, surprisingly close to an affirmative answer to our original topic. Uh, now I'll give you a brief overview of what's in it. Um, it basically gives a task list, all the do's and don'ts um, for any rating level that there exists from zero up to 2,500 FIDE. And it lays out, here are the 10 or 20 or 30 things you need to do to go up 100 rating points, basically. Um, so that's that's one huge element of it, is just breaking down what you need to do in a world where we're now inundated with materials that are available to us. It used to be you couldn't get any materials. Now you can get so much you can access 10 million hours of free grandmaster lectures and you don't know which ones you should do, right? Or which new course you should study or book you should read, whatever. So it organizes all that down for you and tells you what you need to do. And on some other principles in it, one thing is that what really matters is what we call sweat work, right? But basically like highly engaged, high effort uh, work that you need to do, right? So rather than sort of having a video running in the background while you're washing dishes or something like that. And, you know, maybe you, you hear somebody say something about a pawn structure, some grandmaster. Um, instead of that, it's to really always monotask and work really hard while you're working. Um, of course, you can do all the fun stuff as well on the side, right? But to make sure that, you know, you're being realistic about when are you doing the stuff that you're actually going to improve from, from. So that's one piece of it is like the sweat, the sweat work, the hard work. Another piece is a framework of accountability by working with other people. And when I taught private chess lessons, what I was actually almost always teaching was semi-private lessons. I taught in groups of two to four players because already from a very, very early point, I had broken a, my chess teaching down to teaching people you know, at first I had a list of seven different exercises to do to improve your chess. And I would go through each one and make, and you needed training partners to do a lot of them, right? So I would go through each one, have them do each exercise, um, have them do it in front of me, you know, give them feedback on how they're doing it, have them do it a second time with my feedback, go through all the exercises and then cycle back around, you know, and do them again at a higher level and a higher rating point. So so what we have in the in the chess dojo is we have this idea that you're working with people in your cohort, um, the people in your rating band is your cohort. So you're working with them, training with them, sparring against them, you know, discussing, you're all reading the same books. So you can all talk together about that book. You know, you can show each other your games. Then we also have what we call the plus, the equal, the minus, right? So your cohort is your equal. Plus is you have access to people, a couple bands above you who, uh, who have to, 
review your stuff for you sometimes, right? And the minus, you have to try and teach stuff down to other people. Everybody learns in different ways, right? Some people are going to learn how to checkmate with king and queen only once they've taught somebody lower rated than them how to do it. Only then is it really going to sink in. King and queen against king may be a bad example because it's not super difficult maybe, but, you know, choose something like the uh, the Lucena position. That's super hard, right? Mm-hmm. So like a rook and pawn against a rook and a certain technique for winning it, right? Um, you know, a lot of people, they could watch it 10 times in a row and never get it until they do it. Other people, they can watch it once and get it. Other people, they need to teach it to somebody else. Other people, they need it explained to them one-on-one by somebody who's checking in on what they're getting. So there's, there's a role for having people above you and below you as well as people in your cohort. And so on your task list, there'll be things where you have to have a stronger player check in on you or where you have to check in on or teach something to a lower player. So that's the plus equal minus. And that's another big um, pillar of the training program. That's amazing. I love everything that you just described and set up. And of course, I'm familiar with it because I've been in the training program for several <laughs> months now. Uh, but I wanted yeah. people who, who uh, aren't familiar with it to, to hear what it's about from you. Uh, one of the things that you talked about, David, that um, has really stuck with me from being part of the training program is the idea of sweat work. And I, sometimes I think I've maybe even interpreted it a little more intensely than I needed to. <laughs> but it helps me because I, I always think about that every week. Sometimes I'm like halfway into the week and I felt like, I, again, I kind of use that that phrase and that approach to guide me. And I think, you know, I don't know if I've done enough sweat work. And one of the things right. that I can tend to shy away from just personally is doing the longer calculation puzzles. I know it's something like my coach, my coach Andres wants me to work on a lot is deeper calculation and mm-hmm. that's that for me is like the hardest of all the sweat work that I can do is yeah. like I actually may literally be sweating sometimes trying to figure some stuff out. Good. And uh, if you're not, if you're not, you're honestly not doing it right. Hmm, interesting. But but I don't want to come across as like a bully either. Right. Because mm-hmm. I want to say, like, if somebody doesn't even want to improve at chess, they just want to play. That's perfectly logical, reasonable and acceptable. Right. And if somebody wants to improve a little bit, but also do a bunch of stuff that's fun, that's perfectly reasonable too. I don't think it works for you to bully yourself into doing sweat work when you don't want to do it, you know? So when we tell people, this is what will actually generate improvement, it's not because we're yelling at them to do that. It's just so that they know, and then they can make informed decisions, right? Do they want to improve or do they want to have fun? I'm fine either way. Right. You know? Yeah, I, um, I take the same perspective uh, for what's worth. I, I feel like it's just better just to know how the process of improvement works and then from there decide how deep into it you want to go, what you're willing to do, what sacrifices are okay with you and what aren't. Um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, that, that is how I approach it. I, I kind of lean towards the the further on the spectrum of, of trying to push myself because I really do want to see improvement. But that's where right. I think what you've taught is really helpful because you can look at it clear-eyed and say, well, if you really do want to improve on a regular basis, if you're not doing any sweat work week to week, it's going to be really hard to improve. You just have to be realistic about it, right? Like I'm not trying to make someone feel guilty for playing bullet chess, but they should know that they're they're unlikely to become very strong by playing a lot of bullet chess, especially if they've already played a lot of bullet chess. They've probably maxed out what they're going to gain from bullet chess at some point, right? So like to get to give a sense of like the sweating part, like I've never been on a swim team, not a professional swimmer, not even anything, right? 
but but when I would swim, I would swim and then crawl out of the pool because I couldn't even stand up and then often throw up. So that's how hard I was training at something that wasn't even, I was, I have never been to a competition or a team or anything. Right. So there are people who are going to work really hard and they're going to (laughs) sweat, you know, and they're going to see improvement and, you know, you may or may not be that person. It's fine either way. Right. But, but it's good to understand what other people are doing and what does help you and what, and what doesn't help you, so to speak, but maybe plenty of fun. Yep. Um, and ju- just know what what you're up against and be realistic about what you're expecting. Because I think it's miserable to expect that you're going to improve and have all this pressure on yourself. Like I need to go up 100 points and then do a bunch of stuff that won't actually improve you and then be in some kind of state where you're torturing yourself about it. Yeah, I think that is the worst case scenario, right? So uh, yeah, I also want to talk a little bit about this second version of the training program that's coming out. Um, as we speak, it'll be next month. So we're in April and you're planning to have it launch in Uh, may can you share some of what will be new in this version yeah um this version is mostly tweaks so there aren't a ton of like new categories of exercises to do or things like that um so it's a yeah i would just first i would say it's it's a bunch of small improvements and modifications and things like that so for example we reviewed every single book that was on our list and we talked about what are all the greatest books that there've ever been in chess. And, you know, we did some of this stuff through podcasts, some of it just on stream so people could see the sausage being made, which I really thought was fun. Um, and then we said, okay, well, like, how does the list of books we have in the program compare to the list of best books ever written, right? Like, are almost all our books actually classics? Um. And we worked through it and redid and reassigned every single book, you know, to every level. And a couple of them are the same, but a lot of them are different, right? We did the same thing with the games that people have to study. What are all the greatest chess games of all time, right? Let's not have people study some random game and have missed one of the greatest games of all time, right? So what are all the games to study? What are the best games to memorize? What are the best positions to practice? We reviewed all our sparring positions, right? A super important component is something we call sparring and uh, where we have you you and a, and a partner practice the same position repeatedly from both sides, sort of iteratively improving your play on that one position and getting deeply good at one position, uh, which you can then take that process and, and apply it to other positions. But uh, in many cases, it can be good to have a really good knowledge of something rather than a little bit of superficial knowledge of of everything. It gives you a chance to really get deep into something. So we reviewed every single position for that, you know, and changed some out and kept some and so forth. So that's another sort of like iterative improvement. Um, And then like another thing we did is just some quality of life improvements because what we had before, it was like a discord server where you can ask questions and a scoreboard in a Google document where you can see where you can check off what you've done and a task list on a Wix, Wix website and blah, you know, not very coherent. And some people would struggle to navigate the pieces just from a user experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that people weren't doing enough, at least according to us, constantly reviewing the scoreboard and seeing what was and wasn't being done. And also we wanted to check like people doing which things are getting more rating points, 
That's an interesting question, right? I'm sure for you, yeah, <laughs> you right. would want to know the answer, right? Exactly. Like, do people who are playing games get more points or people who are studying games or people who are analyzing their own games or people who are watching chess video? Like, what is giving you the most benefit, right? So we, we're constantly checking the scoreboard ourselves, right? To see what's, what's what. And we noticed that people were not doing the sparring enough. But to us, the sparring is super critical and central to the training program. So, you know, above all else, it's playing classical games and then going over the classical games. But the next important, most important piece is the sparring, um, which is getting you that deep knowledge in a couple positions, like I mentioned. And it's also a task that forces you to work with others, which is one of the things we're trying to force people to do is, you know, don't let this be a solitary pursuit. Everybody here is, is, is your training partner and you need to take advantage of that resource is very important resource. So we want people to do that more. So, uh, you know, one thing is sort of integrating a scheduler into the training program. So you can easily be like, I'm looking to do one of these three exercises Tuesday at this time or Thursday at this time. And then it pops up on other people's calendars and they can book the training session with you. You know, as you mentioned that, I think, um, I, I don't think I've really prioritized that uh, and probably not enough in my own mm-hmm. uh, chess study. And I mentioned this also because I, being an adult improver and people in my audience in that category, I think, you know, often when I struggle with something, they might be too. I've sort of been content with doing my own study and getting my coaching, but I haven't mm-hmm. really integrated that part that you're talking about where you do these, you, know, you, you, you spar through certain positions with others and you know, talk it through that really hasn't been a part of my improvement experience, but it's yeah. fascinating to note, as you said, that that is one of like the biggest things that yields improvement, right? According to your research in the dojo. Yeah. And so let me ask you this real quick. Yeah. Um, do you have a training partner or somebody who, when you play a game, you're like, I'm going to go show this other person the game I just played? No, it's just my coach. Yeah. Right. So if you don't have that, if you don't have a reliable equal mm-hmm. in the plus equal minus terminology, mm-hmm. if you don't have that, you're missing one of the pillars of our whole training program, even though you're in the training program. And again, I'm not trying to say anything guilt inducing or anything like no. that for you, right? Or, or bully you into doing something. But I'm just trying to give you the information that you're missing one of the fundamental pieces here. And that's something that we need to do a better job of is getting that message through to people, right? So everybody mm-hmm. out there listening to this podcast, yeah, get yourself a chess buddy. That's, that's, that's task number one. That's priority number one. That's really helpful to learn and know. And I'm, uh, I'm one of those people who wants to get as much improvement as I, as I reasonably can with, with my schedule. So that's something I'll definitely be adding. And hopefully other people listening will too. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to diagnose for you. And that's going to yeah. be easier than the really hard calculation puzzles that you're shirking. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> just talk to somebody. I mean, you're doing this podcast. I know that means that you have no trouble having conversations with people. For some people, it's a challenge to go out and talk to somebody. But for you, this should be a slam dunk. Like you just find somebody who wants to talk about chess with you every now and then. Yeah, right. Absolutely. No, that's a, that's a great tip and and advice. I love it. So just to kind of expand a little bit, our discussion on what chess dojo offers, because as I said, when we talked before this interview, you mentioned that you want to be sure that people knew the chess dojo was known for more than just the training program. So what are a couple of other key areas that 
you want people to be aware of with the chess dojo. Yeah, I don't want us to be like killjoys where people are, you know, embarrassed to talk to us if they haven't been doing sweat work or something, right? <laughs> right. Like, oh, these guys are always, you know, making fun of bullet chess and you guilt tripping people who haven't done really tough puzzles. You know, they want us to all read Dvoretsky at 1200. No, 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 no. <laughs> Have a lot of fun. You know, we filled our program with like the most entertaining chess books there are. But as as you're alluding to, you know, we want to be doing game shows on, on chess dojo. You know, we want to be doing chess reality shows. We want to be just hanging out and having fun and, you know, making up stupid rhymes about chess and, and, and all of the fun stuff around chess culture, you know, and we do manage to keep our talk show up, right. Which is an example of something that, you know, you're not going to get much better in general listening to our <laughs> dojo talks. Right. Yep, but totally agree. you can get in a few laughs, right. Every time <laughs> Jesse says something more or less, <laughs> Uh, just kidding, Jesse. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we want we want to be a fun place. You know, I don't know if you know this show we did, Ultimate Sensei. Yep. But that was kind of a watered down take of an idea that I had way back when I was at Chess.com, but I didn't have. Chess.com had limited resources then. Now a lot of your listeners may be like, "What? That's a giant corporation. They could do any project they want." You know, but at the time we didn't have necessarily that many resources, and you know, I had a lot of responsibilities, but already back then I had this idea. I wanted to do a chess reality show where basically you take a bunch of players who are in some rating band, say 1400 to 1600, one of the classes, right? That USCF tournaments are divided into. And you start them out six months before the world open. And then you've got another set of competitors who are the teachers And those teachers get to each draft, you know, two to four players. You can use different parameters, right? They draft two to four players that they're going to coach for those six months. And then we watch them get coaching for six months, right? And practice. And every now and then we would have intermediate challenges, right? Where the people following the show can get a chance to prognosticate on who's, who's pulling ahead in the training, right? So you can sort of check in on the horse race, right? Who do you think is going to come out on top? And then ultimately the competition is, you know, who does best at the world open in the under 1600 section, right? Yeah. Um, six months later. And so all the players would have to, you know, guarantee that they were going to travel and play in the world open. And, you know, you would go through everything, right? Like going to local tournaments to, to get in some practice and whatever any of the coaches thought was going to be good training. You know, maybe some coaches would make, their students swim laps until they threw up. Right. (laughs) And you would get that in your show. And, you know, other people would be like, you need to go meditate for two weeks, you know, and there would just be like silence, (laughs) you know, no chess pieces, (laughs) who knows. Right. And so you'd see that clash. And then every now and then we'd get, we'd get people together for some intermediate challenge. And the viewers would be like, Oh, I think these guys are going to, you know, this team looks really strong. They're going to win at the world open or whatever. And then you could find out if you're right or wrong. That was my dream. And uh, we did sort of a six week instead of six month version, or maybe, maybe eight to 10 weeks online version with online challenges. And then a smaller tournament just with our, just with our contestants, right? Not, not the context of a larger over the board tournament because we launched ultimate sensei during the pandemic. So it was like yeah. <laughs> not practical for everyone to go to the world open, but I would still love to do like the real thing, you know, with video cameras and, and you know, a big group of people in a real OTB tournament as the as the finals. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would love to see that. 
Uh, speaking right? of which, who wouldn't? Right. Who wouldn't? Speaking of which, do you have? Does the JoJo have any plans right now to do a second season of the show? We've done two seasons of Ultimate Sensei oh, so far, and <laughs> and season three is on hold at the moment. A couple reasons. One reason that we you know really started putting a lot of focus into this training program, which you know hopefully once version two comes out, you know it's a little more backburnery. And, you know, fresh energy can go into other projects. And another thing that the ultimate season Sensei 2 was, was riddled with a couple problems. <laughs> so, so that was, and when you do anything in real life, you know, you, you may think your idea is great when you're at home typing into a document, you know, and <laughs> you got plenty of water to drink and nobody telling you you're an idiot. Um, and then in practice, you can run into problems. So in the second, the first season I thought was fantastic. The second season, we had two or three students withdraw during the competition, um, which really breaks the whole fairness of the contest. And I had never, I'd never even conceived of the fact that that could happen because one of the things the students are getting is coaching from, you know, a top chess trainer, an IM or a GM or somebody for weeks and weeks for free. So, so I thought like, <laughs> yeah, I thought like it's a done deal for like the students, you know, this thing's like amazing. Plus then they're competing for, for cash. Right. Yeah. So, wow. But, 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 you know, the cash prizes that we were able to offer as like a very small teaching channel where, you know, we, we earn less than, than we would if we were just teaching lessons, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> but the cash we could put up was much less than the value of, you know, 10 weeks of, of private lessons. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, just the private lessons alone should be incentive enough. Yeah. So I never imagined that could happen. And then, you know, at that point, you know, for a coach who drafted players to put in replacement players, how do you do it in any way that's, that's fair since the players come out of a draft, right? And people have been working with the coach for different lengths of time at that point. And, oh man, it was just, that was a nightmare and, and really, um, yeah, it hurts because in practice you have to put this stuff together and you're a person with limited hours. And, uh, when you, when you run into problems, it, 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 uh, it really disincentivizes you from making that huge effort again the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. But hopefully the next round, whenever it comes out, will will not. Yeah. Really hopefully have hopefully yeah. there will be another round. I mean, I still think it's a, a fantastic concept and I would just like to stretch it out and bring in OTB events and so forth. Yeah. I'd be a, a big fan of that. I kind of missed I was starting to get much more engaged with different parts of the community, but I kind of missed watching that live when it happened. So, uh, but I know that I'd be a big fan of it. So I'd, I'd definitely love to see that. Um, yeah, just, uh, two, just two more questions for you, David, just to kind of wrap up our conversation. One yeah. is, um, uh, you may have noticed this online. I, uh, solicited questions from my Twitter followers on chess improvement. Yeah. If they had any, um, yeah. my favorite one came from the follower, Sir Rooksky. He asks, uh, if, if you were to start your chess journey all over again, what advice would you give to yourself to accelerate or make more efficient your improvement? Yeah. Um, that was also my favorite question. And, you know, I tried to come into this fresh and not like review any interview questions, even though we had a small pre-conversation. I had some ideas where it might go, but mm -hmm. I wanted to come into fresh, but I did see your tweet and I saw that question. I was like, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, right. That's the yeah. kind of question I would want to ask somebody. Um, and for me, the answer is really clear. I would tell myself, look, if you want to be the world champion, you're going to have to work on your backhand much sooner. You know, if, if, if you're serious, mm -hmm. So I had my own unrealistic thing, which is that I was trying to become 
the best player in the world while not working on my weaknesses. Does mm. that make sense yep. to you that I would try to do that? <laughs> well, I can understand why that might happen, but yeah, I get I get the illogic of of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm just gonna, you know, make the position so complicated and outcalculate everybody so hard that I don't even need to be able to win a two pawn up end game. Like it's just going to be, you know, they're tipping their Kings over in the middle of the board Mm -hmm. as my army, you know, chases them around ruthlessly. Um, but you, I mean, there's this, you, you know, you reach a point where your opponents are 2,600 and it's (laughs) completely unrealistic, you know? Yeah. So I had some weaknesses and I got really far just enjoying my strengths and continuing to work on my strengths. And it's not that that's, not a good way to learn. I still have plenty of students who I encourage to learn that way and to just, you know, I would say to you maybe like, hey man, you hate doing that really hard calculation? Just leave that as a weakness and enjoy chess, you know, and do the stuff you like. You just need to be realistic. Like if that's your approach, you've got some kind of a limit, which is you're not going to become the world champion if you can't play end games, have no patience and don't defend, right? Like that's <laughs> right. a little bit too much. Right. It's just, a, just, just a touch too much, yeah. you know? So, so, and whichever choice I would make would be fine, right? Again, I'm not telling young me which thing to do, right? I'm just saying like, if you want to be world champion, you're going to have to work on your weaknesses sooner. Yeah. And if you're happy not being world champion, then, you know, don't torture yourself about the fact that you're not making world champion and just enjoy trying to play your fun chess, you know? And I went back and forth between trying to learn stuff from my weaknesses and then being like, oh no, it's not as fun. Let me go back to just like playing the fun stuff, you know, and then being frustrated at the limitations of things like, you know, the King's Gambit not being good. Just like choosing between playing the King's Gambit or the Rui Lopez, right? Yeah. Like the Rui Lopez requires patience and the ability to to convert small advantages and play end games. Uh, which I didn't have those abilities. So sometimes I would play the Rui Lopez to work on those weaknesses. And other times I would play the King's Gambit and then I would have more fun, but also, you know, against a prepared opponent, I would just get terrible positions, Uh, you know, but I never had a clear answer to myself of which I wanted to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like I hadn't decided for sure if I was trying to become world champion or trying to enjoy chess. And so it's like, if you're running around with unresolved tensions inside yourself, even you don't know what you're trying to achieve. And that means you probably won't achieve whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, even though your goal at the time was world champion, I think the lesson that you got out of that, correct me if you think differently, uh, is relevant at almost any level because it kind of comes back to this theme that you discussed earlier of just being clear eyed about what's necessary for, you know, kind of any given level of skill or expertise that you want to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So don't, don't tie yourself up in internal knots, you know, with, with some kind of internal contradiction, right? Right. Like if you want to go from 1400 to 1600 and there's a way to do it, then you have to decide, like, do I really want to do it? And if you don't want to do it, then accept that you're going to stay at 1400 and you're going to enjoy it in your way, but you're going to enjoy playing the games the way you do. And you're not going to be upset that you didn't get to 1600. And if you want to get, and if you decide you do want to get to 1600, then don't not do the work to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, so just, just be, be consistent like that and you'll feel much more happy and at peace. Yeah. Great lesson. Great lesson. Uh, Final question for you, David, and I've had a great conversation with you. I've really enjoyed listening to everything you've had to say about, uh, about your own journey and chess in general. What are you most proud of that chess dojo has 
given to the chess community and chess improvers? I guess I'm proudest of the fact that when the chess dojo people are hanging out together, it's very harmonious. You know, people are not rude to each other. They're never insulting each other. They're not fighting about their religion or their politics or whatever. You know, there's there's probably people who think I'm insane or who thinks, or who think Jesse is insane less so for Costia maybe, but, um, but everybody's just really nice together. And I almost take it for granted because it's been so long and everybody's just nice. But if, but if I think about it, that would be what I'm most proud of. You know, there's no judgment between higher players and lower players. There's no resentments. Um, people are very comfortable talking about their weaknesses and, giving each other feedback. Some people it's hard to teach them because they don't, because it hurts their ego to talk about like their weaknesses or their problems. So like, you know, if you're like, Hey, show me some, some games of yours for me to, to go over and give you some advice. They'll show you their wins instead of their losses. (laughs) There, there are people who are super sensitive, right? So, um, that people feel safe and comfortable, like stepping forward with, here's the terrible game I played, you know, here's, here's this problem, here's that, and just giving each other feedback without anyone worrying that they're being made less of by other people's feedback, that none of us are insulting each other, we're just helping each other. Yeah, that's got to be the best thing, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it is hard to find (laughs) in any online community uh, like that level of respect and cordiality towards each other. Um, and you know, maybe even more so in chess, I don't know, it feels like. So I think it's a, it's a real testament to what you Kostya and Jesse have, have created with the chess dojo that, that that's true. And I've experienced that. I can, I can definitely attest to what you're talking about. Um, good. I'm glad it's not just me who sees it that way. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) No, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's an awesome accomplishment and it's, it's really needed in the chess community because I think it's what. I think it's what keeps people there long-term is knowing that, you know, it's, it's, it's a respectful place. That's a fantastic accomplishment. And I could probably list about 10 others that I think are really awesome that Chess Dojo has given to the community, but uh, we'll leave it at that, at that point for right now. Uh, and I just want to say right. again, uh, David, that I really appreciate your time and all of your insights and that you shared today. Um, I really enjoyed hearing all of them and I'm sure everyone listening will as well. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much again for being on the show. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. I hope uh, I hope there's some interesting points there for people. And uh, I love discussing and arguing and all that. So if anybody has any thoughts <laughs> or questions or follow ups, you can always tag me and you know ask your questions or drop into our chat and ask your questions. And uh, we can discuss no matter how stupid you think my ideas are, <laughs> or how stupid your ideas sound to me, we can discuss them all. I appreciate that part of you, David, that you are, you know, just open to discussing and, and, you know, debating even if, if people want to. So that's really cool of you. And uh, yeah, again, thank you for being on the show and uh, we'll stay in touch. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.